Hi, I'm Red Mom Caitlin. And I'm Blue Mom Shelly. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms with opposing political views who enjoy talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We believe in the importance of dialogue to help us learn from one another, especially when we have differences of opinion. Our goal isn't necessarily to agree, but where we disagree, to keep talking. We hope we inspire you to have real conversations on important issues with people with whom you disagree. And we hope our legislators are doing the same. Let's get started. Listeners, this is Blue Mom Shelley, and thanks for joining us for another lightning round episode. This format is a chance for us to discuss several political or social events that are in the news in between the episodes where we dive deeper into just one topic. So let's get started with our first topic today. This one on Trump and foreign affairs. Now this story is just freshly in the news in the last few days, so our listeners may not have had a chance yet to fully understand what just happened. Here's the story. It's a little complex and is just now breaking, so bear with me. You've already heard Trump's seemingly unyielding support of Saudi Arabia, the country that produced and financed the terrorists that brought us 9-11, one of the most oppressive, undemocratic countries in the world, governed by Islamic Sharia law, where women are substandard, a country with a history of human rights abuses and financing terrorism. Trump recently even defended the Saudi crown prince after, after his brutal murder of the American citizen and journalist Khashoggi for writing critically of the Saudi regime. Now, by brutally murdered listeners, I mean the prince actually had his people lure the journalist into an embassy and murder him and cut up his body, yet Trump tried to play it down. And now, Trump's latest insult to America by supporting Saudi Arabia is this. Trump recently agreed to sell eight billion dollars in arms to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates at their request. These arms are, in part, to use in the Saudi war in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia has used U.S. bombs and arms to kill 18,000 civilians, including children. So, several Republicans, even Lindsey Graham, a friend and staunch supporter of President Trump, voted recently to block the arms sale to Saudi Arabia, citing some of the same things I just cited. And mind you, Congress has the power to determine arms sales. Just days ago, Trump vetoed the bipartisan law that Congress passed blocking the sale. Then, oddly enough, Trump engaged in a Twitter battle about Baltimore being a rat-infested place no human would want to live in with Congressman Elijah Cummings, spurring more outrage about his racist comments. But some of us at the time not suspecting that Trump may actually have been deflecting attention from or trying to head off a public revelation that Cummings, who also happens to head the Congressional Oversight Committee investigating Trump, was releasing a report, which it just did yesterday, revealing that none other than Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates edited Trump's 2016 campaign speech to include language about working with those countries on energy under the guise of reducing terrorism, and that Trump's campaign, namely Thomas Barrack and now imprisoned campaign manager Paul Manafort, were working on behalf of the campaign with Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates to shape Trump's policies with those countries in their own personal financial interest. It turns out Barrick's investment firm has since made $1.5 billion from Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates and has proposed the Trump administration allow companies to make billions more, his company included, to build nuclear plants in Saudi Arabia, thereby passing nuclear technology to the Saudis that they want. We'll post this article on redmombloomon.com. It's hard to believe. 
This is not just more of Trump moving forward the desired policies of his ultra-wealthy billionaire administration. But in this case, Trump has used the presidency in such an unpatriotic way. This is so un-American, vetoing even a Republican congressional bloc in order to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi arms deal and the veto, together with this revelation that Trump is influenced by the money flowing from these deals, infuriates me. And I think it should infuriate Republicans too because it is un-American. Caitlin, are you also infuriated over this? That is a lot to digest. <laughs> and as you said, Shelley, I think this a lot of the revelations that you just mentioned around Cummings and the report from the Oversight Committee, um, those are freshly released within the last couple of days as of the date we're recording this podcast. So I must admit, I have not had a chance to fully digest that information. I don't really know enough about those elements of it um, around, you know, Trump's campaign team and their personal interests in Saudi Arabia, etc. I am interested to know from you, though, Shelley, and I know you have some academic experience with, you know, foreign affairs, foreign relations. What do you think the appropriate role is for the U.S. to sell weapons to foreign countries, particularly a place like Saudi Arabia, which, as you accurately described, is a terrible place in a lot of ways in terms of how they treat women and some of the, um, you know, conflicts that they engage with in, with countries like Yemen, etc. What are your thoughts on if it's appropriate for the U.S. to be selling those places um, weapons and military supplies. I've never liked it. Um, I know President Obama did it a lot of, historically we've done it, we've sold arms all over the world. The arms don't go away. So, you know, if we're arming the Kurds right now, those weapons could be used against us by someone else in a couple years that, that we don't collect them afterward. It's also a way for private companies in the United States to make a lot of money on these deals. And the arms are often used for, for bad purposes. Uh, like I say, sometimes they're even used against our own soldiers. So I think it's it's bad all the way around. But in particular, Saudi Arabia lately, they've never sort of improved in terms of their human rights abuses. Uh, what happened recently with the journalist Khashoggi and then President Trump has, is really bending over backward to keep this deal because of the money that it brings to uh, a few people. Yeah, what do you say about, and you just mentioned that you acknowledge that Obama's administration um, did this as well in terms of selling arms to Saudi Arabia. So let's just isolate that piece of it for a minute. In fact, the Obama administration sold $115 billion worth of weapons, ammo, tanks, military training, etc. to Saudi Arabia during his two terms in office. Uh, One of the articles that I read from Reuters said that it was the most support any administration had offered during the 71-year history between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And I know that you're especially upset about Trump's veto of this kind of bipartisan effort to halt the arms deal. Did you feel the same in 2010? Obama was widely criticized, and I'll share an article from ABC News on redmombluemom.com, widely criticized in 2010 for trying to hide a massive $60 billion arms sale, so not the $8 billion that, that Trump's doing, $60 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia, even with bipartisan members of Congress opposing the deal. Then Defense Secretary Robert Gates and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton both supported it. Um, Obama's reasoning for doing it was similar to what Trump's reasoning is, uh, talking about job creation and kind of the means of boosting support uh, among among Arab allies against Iran, etc. What are your thoughts about that? Was Obama equally 
un-American or unpatriotic for trying to what was criticized as hiding a massive arms deal. Yeah, I think it's bad policy both for both of them at both times. You know, we're talking about a country that is using these arms to kill civilians. It's acted, this country's acted contrary to our interest, to Western interest repeatedly. They literally produced 9-11, both in terms of the people who, the terrorists themselves and the financing behind a lot of terrorism. It's a country governed by Islamic Sharia law. This is un-American to make these sales, both for Obama and for Trump. I think it's bad policy. Yeah, and I agree with you there. And and obviously, I'm not a big Obama fan, and I'm not saying this to, to pick on him or kind of do a whataboutism with Trump. But admittedly, when you first introduced this topic, I just didn't know a lot about this subject. I'm guessing many of our listeners may be in the same boat. I was shocked about the billions of dollars, the hundreds of billions of dollars worth of arms that we do sell. I'm not trying to pick on Obama, I promise. There's a, an interesting article that also talks about during President Obama's first six years in office, Washington entered into agreements selling more than $190 billion in weaponry worldwide, not just specific to Saudi Arabia. And at that point, that was more than any U.S. administration since World War II. So it just kind of puts it into context, the volume of money and arms and probably back office dealings, regardless of the administration, that happens. And it's it's pretty shocking. One difference, I guess I would point out that sort of makes it ironic is Trump, in the meantime, is trying to turn our focus to accusing kneeling athletes of being un-American or recently progressive congresswomen of being of not loving America. And so the irony sort of in uh, his words versus his actions is um, disturbing. I don't know. I think the situation with Saudi Arabia, and I am certainly no expert, admittedly, I don't know a lot about it, um, but hearing about the atrocities with their war on Yemen, the number of civilian casualties, which I think is in the thousands, widely denounced by the UN and other countries around the world as a terrible event. The thought that the US is contributing to that, either now or in the past, which seems to be the case, is pretty terrible. And I and I certainly don't like that. I will say to Obama's credit, I was reading that he did try to halt weapon sales uh, to Saudi Arabia sometime in 2016, after that Yemen war had started. My understanding is that I think that Yemen war has been going on for about three or four years, as some of those atrocities against civilians and others were becoming known, Obama did try to stop or did stop weapon sales. Uh, Trump reversed that policy when he took office, again, citing the importance of weapons manufacturing to the U.S. economy and so forth. Uh, on its face, that argument doesn't hold water for me. Uh, you know, I don't understand all the nuances and the context there. But to your point, perhaps that's because there are ties to other personal interests, either for Trump or folks that are close to him. Uh, and if so, that's very disturbing. I agree. Okay, next topic, Caitlin. In our last episode, we disagreed about whether President Trump's recent comments uh, regarding four congresswomen were racist, and we had a discussion on whether the Dems see everything as racist. Uh, Now there's another lawmaker in the news who has been in office for many years, Iowa Representative Steve King. He's been reelected again and again by the good people in his Iowa district, even though he has made many comments widely viewed as racist. So I'm wondering if you'll agree with me this time that the comment was racist. Here it is. Congressman King was asked by an Iowa constituent about his past comments being white nationalist or white supremacist. And in questioning him, she commented that, quote, dehumanizing Mexican culture was not funny to her. Congressman King responded with, quote, 
If we presume that every culture is equal and has an equal amount to contribute to our civilization, then we're devaluing the contributions of the people who laid the foundation for America, and that's our founding fathers. We need to hang on to those principles and restore them and refurbish the pillars of American exceptionalism. Isn't the congressman just admitting his white supremacist views in this comment? And if so, how can this man still be in office? So I guess I'm first interested to know if there's more to that exchange. The woman's comment about how dehumanizing Mexican culture isn't funny to her doesn't seem to carry over into the response from Steve King. Do you know what he said about Mexican culture specifically? I'm trying to connect the dots between Mexican culture and the response that you just read. I don't know if he said anything about it. He has been asked to comment on his past uh, comments that uh, have been viewed as white nationalist or white supremacist. So she was asking him about that. I don't know if he said anything about Mexican culture or or not. Okay, yeah, that piece I wasn't quite clear. Uh, As you mentioned, we've established in previous episodes that you and I really disagree on if so-called American exceptionalism is a good thing. Uh, We talked about it on an episode, if listeners haven't heard, in which we talked about white supremacy and hate crimes. But for folks that haven't heard that episode, Shelley, is it accurate for me to say that generally you think that a belief in American exceptionalism is linked to or maybe equates to a belief in white supremacy? Or I don't want to misquote no, you. No, not American exceptionalism. What he says here is, if we presume that every culture is equal and has an equal amount to contribute to our civilization. So what he's saying there is historically a very white supremacist view. That is that um, our culture uh, and Western, uh, our culture and Western civilization has made a greater contribution than than any other culture. He's referring to uh, white European culture. So it's not the American exceptionalism that is the issue. It's implying that other cultures don't have as much to contribute. Aren't aren't equal. He says specifically if. Don't presume that every culture is equal. You're okay with American exceptionalism. Do I'm, you I'm agree okay with, with it? Do you believe in it? That America is a great place, one of the greatest countries in the world? Yes. But not American exceptionalism. Well, isn't that what American exceptionalism means? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I would I'm define thinking. it as, you know, American exceptionalism is a belief or a conviction um, that the U.S. Uh, holds kind of a unique place and a role in you know, human history historically and and going forward, I guess. Sure. That's the great country of the United States. And I agree with that. That um, is not related to comparing any particular race or ethnicity, ethnicity or any particular culture with another culture. Do you think every culture in the world is equal? Because it sounds like you're disagreeing with Steve King on his premise that there are differences in cultures, differences in contributions. I, 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 believe that no other culture is inferior, correct? Interesting. Okay. Well, I don't think every culture is equal. I think American culture has a lot of superior qualities. In fact, we just got done talking about Saudi Arabia and some of the cultures in the Middle East around how they treat um, women, how they treat, uh, you know, LGBTQ members of their society, etc. You would be hard pressed to, to me to argue that that culture is equal to American culture, just in terms of freedoms and liberty and, and equality and human rights and things like that. So I agree with Steve's uh, Steve King's comment that not every culture um, is equal. And what about his second part around devaluing the contributions of America and I think the genius of our founding fathers? Does that founding fathers founding fathers reference uh, imply some sort of white supremacy in your mind? Well, the founding fathers were white, so I think think that is what he was referring to. The difference between um, what what you just referred to, those are other countries' governments. 
Sure. There are other no, countries, governments so. who, we just talked about Saudi Arabia, they have a repressive government that has chosen its view of Islamic Sharia law. I was going to say, with, it's a religious element as well, right? It's a religious element and its interpretation of that religion and the government actually making laws accordingly. Um, that's different than, in my view, culture, because what he's saying here, we're talking about America, right? So the various cultures that come into America, he's presuming that they're not all equal. That's where I think it's clearly racist. Well, he doesn't say people from every culture coming to America are not equal. He just says, if we presume that every culture is equal and has an equal amount to contribute to our civilization, then we are devaluing the contributions of people who laid the foundation for America, and that's our founding fathers. We need to hang on to those principles and restore them and refurbish the pillars of American exceptionalism. That's sort of straight out of the white supremacist. I mean, even I, I think even Republicans have condemned these statements. He was kicked off committees after making statements like this. The Republican National Committee, I think, is finally no longer supporting him. He's still in office. He's he's lost a lot of support because I think I think this is widely viewed as, you know, you and I had an episode on where we ended up touching on white nationalism and, and, and Europe, and we had the same discussion, and that is, if you say that one culture is better than the other, is that racist? I, I think it is, uh, and, and I think that's what, that's what he's saying here. I think it's intended to be. Yeah, and you and I clearly define the word culture differently, I think. I think you're maybe doing a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison in terms of how you're defining culture in a place like Saudi Arabia versus culture in the U.S. And I want to be clear, I think Steve King has definitely made racist comments in the past. Earlier this year, he had some stupid comment in an interview, I think, with the New York Times, saying something to the effect of he doesn't understand why the phrase white supremacist is offensive. That's stupid. That's racist. He was widely denounced by Republicans and Democrats alike for that. So I agree with you well, that he, he has he a said history that because that. he is white supremacist. I mean, that's, and I think that, that that's just coming through in a different comment here. What do you think about uh, Obama in his 2009 inaugural when he said, our founding fathers, faced with perils we can scarcely imagine, drafted a charter to assure the rule of law and the rights of man. Those ideals still light the world and we will not give them up. There's nothing wrong with uh, praising our founding fathers. We're all sitting here benefiting from everything our founding fathers How did. How is that different from Steve King saying devaluing the contributions of people who laid the foundation for, the Amer for America and that's our founding fathers? Because what he starts by saying is, if we presume that every culture is equal and has an equal amount yep. to contribute to our civilization. So again, he's saying some cultures are inferior and don't have as much to contribute. That is is white supremacy. Hmm. I disagree with you there. I, I agree with that. I think that it's you can't say that every culture is equal and uh, I'm okay with that. I don't I don't find that to be white supremacist at all. I think his overall statement and, and his references, uh, Steve King's references to uh, hanging on to principles established by the founding fathers and refurbishing the pillars of American exceptionalism, I think that same sentiment has been echoed by many people uh, on both the left and the right. I don't find that particular comment inherently white supremacist or racist. I understand that he has said other things in the past that are certainly in that bucket, but this particular example, um, I just disagree with you. I know you don't live in Iowa, so you can't vote for, for King, but I'm curious. Let's say you agreed with me that something Trump said was racist. Let's say that he said, you know, black people are bad or something that you agreed and, and you said this was racist. I have to ask, would you still vote for him in 2020? Depends on who the other choice is. 
it, let's say it's any one of the current Democratic candidates, your, your favorite if you had one. Yep, I would still vote for him. You would still vote for him. Mm-hmm. Based on the current um, group of Democratic candidates, absolutely. So having a racist person in office is not a deal breaker for you. That's what I don't understand. How can Republicans support such a morally I know, and person? I get that question all the time. Here, Here's the thing for me that I've come to terms with, and I've talked on almost every episode we've done about how I do not like Trump's character. I don't like him as a person. He was absolutely my last choice out of the 17 or 18 Democrat, or excuse me, Republican primary candidates in 2016. I'm not looking to any president, I don't care if it's Trump or Obama or whomever, to kind of set a moral standard for myself or my family around my behavior, my beliefs. Do I wish Trump would be less uh, insulting? Do I wish he would be less bombastic? Do I wish he would be more quote unquote presidential? Of course. And I think you would be hard pressed to find any Republican or conservative voter who doesn't want that. But the reality is, he is who he is. There is no other choice for 2020. And when I look at the policies and the politics of these Democratic candidates, I absolutely am fearful for the direction of our country uh, as we think about important issues around health care and liberty and immigration and all of these policy issues that everybody's thinking about right now. Those are untenable to me. So Trump is my choice. My other option right. is to not vote, and that is much that may as well be a vote for the Democrats, and I'm not willing to do that either. Right. It's not a great place to be in. I wish Trump was different. I have wished that from the very beginning. He is. He's. He's who we have. I don't right. have the ability to change that. That's where where I guess we disagree. I've been known to vote for Republicans sometimes and for certain offices when I uh, think that they're the right person. So I'm not maybe as as stuck in voting one way or another with respect to parties. Racism is something that does affect policy. Racism affects our whole country. Racism is is a problem with America that uh, we address poli- politically and socially, and it's it's always you know it's always there, and we're hopefully trying to reduce it. And so, I, and and similarly, his other personal, I mean, we're talking about someone who repeatedly makes comments like this, uh, demeaning comments. He's made sexist comments with respect to women. That's also that also f- affects policy it affects our nation um, this is a leader he's declared bankruptcy numerous times all these things that I thought would disqualify him for for Republicans on you know on some of these issues to just put a bad person in office someone that we basically all acknowledge is bad I mean if we're going to agree that he's racist we both agree that racism is bad I don't agree that he's racist by the way so right the example you the just example, gave was hypothetically, hypothetically if you did right to to put someone in office and keep someone in office who we, we all agree is a bad person just strikes me as remarkable, especially in a position like president of the United States. Yeah, and I think it's a poor reflection on the candidates that run for office at that level. I think you could probably, a lot of conservatives, including myself, would argue that Hillary Clinton is a terrible person, maybe for different reasons. I may not think Hillary Clinton's a racist, but I do think she's a criminal, and I think there's a lot of problems with her character as well. But it is a sad state of affairs when the options are people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. It's not ideal. You and I disagree on whether or not Trump is racist. Uh, I think the, the goalposts for what is being defined as racism are ever changing. And as we talked about on our last conversation, I think the left has done a really good job of becoming the arbiters of deciding what is racist. Um, so that's challenging for Republicans. 
but I don't know. I uh, sitting here today in July 2019 and looking forward to the 2020 election and and watching some of the debates with Democratic presidential candidates, including as recent as last night. There is no way I would ever vote for a single person uh, in that Democratic pool today based on their policies. So yeah, that's that's I guess that's the part that's disturbing to me is that even if he is racist, that his supporters will continue to support him. There was a piece just this morning by the National Cathedral, a sort of religious piece about how is it we're, you know, if we're ignoring and hearing these comments come from the president repeatedly and then we're ignoring them, you know, he the the author compared it to McCarthyism. It it's dehumanizing. It's it's just so bad for our country and it's so bad to set this example that, you know, the question that the article posed is are, are we all complicit if we're uh, allowing this person to to be racist and not standing up to it. So yeah, I, I guess the last thing I would say, though, is I think, and I made a joke about this on our last episode, talking about Trump's tweets uh, around the squad and going back to where they came from, and you and I disagree on whether or not that's racist or not. We don't need to rehash that here, but I think I made a joke around everything is now racist. And I, I do think, even based on what you just said, are we becoming desensitized? Certainly, I am numb to this accusation of racism as a conservative, because whatever I say, if I support Trump, whatever my logic, whatever my reasoning, if it's something that the left has deemed as racist, ergo, I am a racist. And I think, unfortunately, the, the left, in their, in their fever of uh, assigning Trump as this racist, and frankly, all of his voters as racist, I know that's not something that you've done, but many on the left have. Uh, as recently as last night's debate, Don Lemon made a comment about why do Trump voters seem to be willing to overlook his bigotry and racism in favor of economic policy? Give me a break. I mean, that is such a biased way to even talk about the Trump electorate, but but putting that aside, I think the left has done themselves a little bit of a disservice by applying the word racism and labeling everything as racism, even when objectively some of these things I think are up for debate on whether or not they're racist. And, and maybe that's just where we disagree, but well, I have become completely desensitized to it. It's a meaningless word now, and that I do think is a problem. Well, that that, that is a problem. I think it's a problem if people on the right don't find anything to be racist. I do think, though, that there is a You know, we have to acknowledge when something really is racist. I agree with you there, but I think there is such a strong hatred for Trump on the part of the left that that clouds sometimes the objective analysis of what he said or what he's doing. I'm not I'm not arguing that racism is an important problem and that we should that call I out racism with. when it happens. But throughout this presidency so far, even during the campaign, I think you would agree, and there's uh, Rush Limbaugh, who I know you don't listen to very often, but I listen to regularly. I'm joking. I'm sure you never listen to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, he has coined this phrase, TDS, Trump derangement syndrome. And it's kind of a joke, but I yeah. think there's some truth to no, it. No, you're right. right. That, I, hatred, I... that hatred for Trump colors everything. And as a result, it does kind of diminish, I think, serious issues that are worthy of discussion. You're right. And and I, I think that does happen. There are some things that when Trump was running that I agree with him on. He hasn't followed through on them. He said he would get us out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, yeah, every president you know, says that, right? He, he <laughs> has a year war and, and, and that he would, you know, you and I talked about impl implement E-Verify for employers and that would address immigration. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done these things. 
but there were th things that he said that, that I agreed with him and that many Americans agreed with him on, and, and, and that's how he got elected. But he's proven time and again that he's not a good person, and uh, I think it's it's disturbing to have a leader like that in office. Well, I agree with you there. I agree that he's not a good person. I don't like his character. I wish he would do better, but he's not. And, and my only option as a Republican voter, as a conservative voter, looking at some of the policies and the ideas coming out from the left and from the Democrat candidates... I don't have another option other than Trump unless I don't want to vote at all. We'll talk about that when we talk about the candidates. I'll have to add yep. there's several middle of the road Democratic uh, candidates, and I'm and I'm wondering why you. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about well, it. Your in another definition episode. of middle of the road may be different than mine, but I look forward to talking about that at length. All right, so let's move on. Next topic, um, Shelley. We have a Colorado story that recently made national news in the month of July, and unfortunately not in a good way, with the recent announcement from the Trump administration that ICE would be deporting convicted illegal immigrant criminals back to their home country, an organization called Lights for Liberty organized a variety of protests and vigils at detention centers across the country. One such protest occurred at a facility in Aurora, Colorado, which is a Denver suburb. Some of the protesters pulled down the American flag, as well as a Blue Lives Matter flags, and in their place raised a Mexico flag, as well as raising the Blue Lives Matter flag upside down with the phrase abolish ICE spray painted on it. Shelley, do you think these types of protests help or hurt the cause of immigration activists in the U.S.? I don't know that the Aurora protest helped the movement. And like many protests, sometimes the protesters' message isn't obvious or they weren't organized or the protests seem silly. I actually think raising a, Mex a Mexican flag was silly. Um, but I think the protest was harmless. And generally, I don't understand the outrage here on the right for a couple of reasons. One, you, you didn't mention that the protesters also took down the GEO company banner, which um, represents this idea that there's a huge problem with private profit and detention centers. There's a prominent school of thought that prisons are not something the government should have outsourced to private businesses as it may have resulted in our problem today with mass incarceration or in this case unnecessary detention of immigrants. Um, so that was the point of removing the private GEO company banner. Second, removing the American flag raised above a place that is facilitating family separation kind of makes sense to me. Aren't we all uncomfortable with uh, toddlers being torn from their parents for months by the United States government and underneath the United States flag? And thirdly, uh, you mentioned the Blue Lives Matter flag. I actually had to look that up. The upside down flag that these protesters ra raised, um, you said it was painted with words to disparage law enforcement. I don't think that's necessarily true. No, it true. Had, had the phrase abolish ICE spray right. painted on it. So it wasn't about police, local police. It had abolish ICE sprayed on yeah, it. Yeah, law enforcement. And uh, so it was about the detention of immigrants, not our local police officers. But the flag that was flying there in the first place, you mentioned it is a Blue Lives Matter flag. I actually had never heard of it or seen it. It's called a thin blue line flag. Um, so I had to look it up. It's an American flag with a blue line across it, symbolizing the the, the, the thin blue line uh, that police provide between chaos and yep. order in it's, our society. So it's a flag created to honor law enforcement, which yep. is it's a good sentiment that I agree with. But I, I'm curious, who decided that that was an appropriate modification to the American flag and, and appropriate to fly there? What does it have to do with the detention of immigrants? I mean, certainly there are many local law enforcement officers in our country who do not like family separation, who are who are disturbed by the ideas, the idea that families being separated are being separated at the border. And I imagine would not want the thin blue line flag 
flown above this center that's associated with family separation. So I don't know if the flag protest was meaningful or helpful, but I was not outraged by it. It didn't harm anyone. Uh, and I'm curious, I know we'll talk about this in another episode, but I'm curious to hear what you think about family separation. Yeah, I think that's a whole separate episode. I, I'm really shocked, actually, to hear that you classify taking down the American flag and raising a Mexico flag in its place as silly. I thought it was outrageous. I thought it was disgraceful. I was very disappointed that uh, leading Democrats um, on this issue were unwilling to kind of immediately condemn what happened. It seems like this should be a nonpartisan, nonpolitical issue to agree that raising the Mexico flag on U.S. soil, uh, especially in front of a kind of a government or government agenda, adjacent building is unacceptable. I found it completely disgraceful. I think it absolutely hurts uh, the cause of these immigration activists. But I, I am curious to know whether you are as disturbed as some people are that the American flag flies above in the, the family separation happens in the name of uh, America. Are you as outraged that, you know, people wearing the U.S. uniforms or under the American flag are separating families? Do you have an issue that the U.S. flag flies at border control and, and border crossings? No. So how is that different? Well, pulling toddlers apart from parents and keeping them apart for months at a time. I think that's not happening parties, at the detention center, right? So all of that's happening well, the along de- the southern border. Mm-hmm. So, so the detention center is, is housing, this particular one is housing some of the adults that have been separated from, yeah, their, from their kids. Correct. But if you don't have an issue with flying the American, I mean, you could take that analogy elsewhere. I mean, if we're flying the American flag at the border, where some of those detentions are actually initiated, we're flying the American flag in Congress, where they're voting on these legislative issues, we're flying the American flag everywhere. That, to me, is not a very compelling argument. I think in any situation... I'm disturbed by families being torn apart. So would you propose to remove American American flags that are being flown at border patrol crossings? No, I propose that family separation halt immediately. Not my question. You don't want to fly an American flag at a detention facility in Aurora, Colorado, but you want to keep it at the border? Well, if, if family separations are happening, I don't... I don't think it should be done uh, under an American flag. I find it embarrassing and disturbing. The flag is flown above something that's this horrible. Yeah, so you would take it down from, from border patrol offices and locations along the southern border, then it sounds like. I have no problem with it being at border patrol offices. I have a problem with the practice that's happening underneath it right now. Understood. So the two but you're saying you would together. take the flag down. I, I understand. I'm more outraged by the by the flag flying above Uh, that practice is happening in the name of America than I am about someone taking up or putting down an American flag or spray painting it. Yeah, you and I have very different opinions on that, but I I found it disgraceful. We know that the topic of illegal immigration is very important to voters. Uh, A poll from Reuters and Ipsos in early June of this year shows that immigration is ranked as the number one, quote, most important issue facing America for registered independent voters and is tied for number one with health care when looking at results across all adults who participated in that poll. Knowing how important this issue is, I think what happened at that Colorado facility does a great disservice to those that are trying to uh, advocate on behalf of um, illegal immigration policy. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not outraged by the flag protest. Next topic, Caitlin, I think you saw the recent article I posted on social media that contained new information on what a large role pharma companies played in the opioid crisis. We'll post it on redmombluemom.com. It says that documents recently revealed that pharma companies knowingly saturated the market with 76 billion pain pills. There's a map in the article of where they were distributed. Many were in poor rural areas, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, Nevada, for example. 
Some counties where more than 150 pills per person per year were distributed, in other words, large swaths of many poor rural areas where a large number of people were addicted to pain pills. Apparently, at least 100,000 deaths were attributed to the pills just from 2006 to 2012. Uh, the pharma companies knew the quantity being distributed was so great and so suspicious that it couldn't possibly be a legitimate medical need, whether it was uh, rather, it was just basically uh, drug dealing operations. And in fact, there were emails between pharma execs joking about the addic addictions. They made a fortune off of these addictions. I was shocked to see the role that pharma played in this crisis and, and the extent of the crisis itself. And I'm curious to hear what you thought when you saw these revelations. Yeah, my first question was your, your claim that the drug manufacturers knew with certainty that there was no legitimate medical need for the quantity of pills. Can you just point me to the language in the article? I may have missed it. I wasn't I wasn't clear on where that was referenced or, or the emails that you said they were joking about um, addiction. I'll have to find it and I'll give it to you. We can we can post it. The the quantities that we're talking about were, you know, absurd. There was no way that these uh, that these couldn't be seen as suspicious. Um, you'd have, like I say, enough for entire members of communities to be taking regularly every day, all year long, pain medication. So there was clearly, I think the the, the addiction issue um, was known by execs and uh, the quantity was a huge red flag that should have alerted everyone. Well. Yeah, opioid addiction, of course, is known by executives of drug manufacturers. I think everybody knows about the dangers of opioid uh, addiction. I, I guess that that's a pretty strong claim to say that these manufacturers were knowingly, I, I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but basically they knew with certainty that there was no legitimate medical need. So I'd, I'd like to just see that to understand it. What do you think the responsibility is of a manufacturer of a legal product in ultimately how the end user uses that product. What is the manufacturer's culpability or accountability? I think with with addictive products and in, in this case turns out to be a very deadly uh, addictive product um, that the manufacturer has responsibility not to not to foster those addictions. Even though they are producing a product that's legal, that's prescribed by medical professionals, right, and then but it was subsequently abused. It was being prescribed by medical professionals incorrectly, too often. Uh, and, and that's the fault of the manufacturer? Well, the manufacturer was complicit in, if you read the article, it said that there were basically pain clinics, even touristic type pain clinics, where people would come across state lines and uh, knew that they could get a prescription for anything. They don't have to actually show that they have a condition where they need the, uh, the drug for medical reasons. And so just by the sheer numbers, uh, it was apparent that these weren't these weren't uh, legitimate uses. This was a massive, massive quantity. That's what struck me about the article: massive quantity of pills that um, that clearly evidence addiction. So, and so you think the manufacturer is, is responsible for pain clinics existing where people can come in and and get those pills without a prescription? If they're that's the manufacturer's yeah, fault. If they're shipping thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of pills to the same location yes that that uh, there's actually laws that that say that the manufacturers were supposed to have flagged these type of shipments and didn't oh well if they broke the law then i think they should be prosecuted that was unclear to me in the article i know that there's a database it sounds like that the dea 
uses that all manufacturers have to comply with to talk about the volume of pills they're producing, where right. they're shipped. They're supposed um, so to report suspicious shipments, apparently. Which and was, so you're saying these manufacturers didn't do that? Correct. Oh, well, then if there's criminal activity, then they need to be prosecuted. That that was unclear to and me And I don't know if article. it's criminal or, or civil. This is a civil case where these documents were revealed. But um, I was just shocked to see the quantity, the quantity and the the breadth of this of this problem and the, uh, the number of deaths. I think I read uh, in another article that something like 165,000 or 170,000 uh, deaths have been attributed to, to this crisis. Yeah, I agree with you that the opioid crisis is uh, serious. I don't know what the solutions are. I think I disagree with you a little bit around manufacturers of legal products, uh, regardless of what those products may be, if it's pharmaceuticals or guns or tobacco companies or cars, things that can be ultimately used by the end user, the end consumer, uh, to either hurt themselves or others. Uh, I disagree with you on the culpability of the manufacturer. So I think you and I are a little bit different on that side of it. All right, Shelley, our last topic, uh, let's end with something lighter. Many of our listeners may have heard of a recent story in which Macy's department store had to pull a product from their shelves after some activists on social media claimed the products promoted a, quote, toxic message of portion control and that the products were body shaming and promoting eating disorders. What is this terrible product I'm talking about? Well, Macy's was selling a set of dinner plates that had a design in which each plate featured an outline of kind of smaller and smaller concentric circles. One one version of the plate labeled those circles from the outside in as the, the biggest circle was labeled mom jeans, the next circle that was smaller was labeled favorite jeans, and the smallest circle was skinny jeans, obviously making the correlation between portion control and the size of your body and your ability to wear skinny jeans. Now, not surprisingly, Macy's caved to the pressure from these brave social media warriors who apparently know what's best for everyone, and they removed the products from their shelves. They also issued an apology for, quote, missing the mark with the product. So Shelly, I have a two-part question as we wrap up. Number one, do you think America has completely lost its sense of humor? And number two, do you think we'll ever return to a time when if you don't like a product, you just don't buy it and you move on? Right. Well, maybe the plates were meant to be a joke, uh, although I didn't read that in your article. If they were meant to be a joke, then I agree with you. People need to lighten up. Um, and I agree. Who has time to petition Macy's to remove an item from their shelves? But if these plates offended some people, then Macy's decision seems reasonable to me. Now, the plates did not offend me, but I'm uh, not personally affected by eating disorders. I guess I could see how the plates could offend someone. Our listeners can't see the plates unless you're Googling them right now. So let me describe just a little more. The the outside circle that Caitlin mentioned uh, is maybe, I don't know, six or seven inches wide. That's That one says mom jeans. The middle circle is maybe four inches wide or so. It says favorite jeans. And then the little circle in the middle that says skinny jeans is, skinny jeans is only, I think, roughly maybe two inches, it looks to me. So the little circle being only maybe two inches wide basically represents not enough food to survive. I mean, I'm all for smaller portions. Americans, we the people say we eat too large portions, but a two-inch circle represents not a healthy amount of food. So if Macy learns that this has offended people struggling with eating disorders and figures it's better to just pull the plates, I don't care if Macy's pulls the plates that offend people. It's fine by me whatever happens to these plates. Um, I do want to point out that I'm not outraged by these plates or we just discussed I'm not outraged by the flag protests. You are. 
I am outraged by racism in our leaders. I'm outraged about selling arms to Saudi Arabia. I'm outraged about um, pharma companies participating in large amount, large numbers of uh, deaths related to addiction. I I think it's interesting um, that we both find different types of events outrageous. Oh, I don't think these are outrageous. I think the outrage over these plates is completely ridiculous. They're labeled as novelty plates. And I think if we get to a place in this country where, God forbid, anyone is outraged by anything, that that retailer has to then pull that product off their shelves is beyond stupid. I also want to, since we're talking about different things, you know, different things that uh, affect us, uh, different things that cause us each to be outraged and maybe don't cause the other one to be outraged, I wanted to mention, and maybe I should have mentioned it in the beginning, but I wanted to mention in today's podcast, the shooting that just took place in California. We didn't talk about it today, um, but I'd like to acknowledge the loss of lives there. There was a six-year-old, there were three people that died um, and several more injuries. And as we discuss these things that, you know, outreach some of us and not others, in my view, it's outrageous that people in America can't go to a garlic festival without the risk of getting shot. It's outrageous how many of these shootings are taking place. And it's outrageous that our Congress hasn't passed better gun control laws, because I think it's a matter of public safety, just basic, their Congress's basic job. So, and I know you don't agree with me on gun control laws, um, but in my view, these shootings and the ease with which a 19-year-old can purchase a semi-automatic weapon and in less than a minute shoot, you know, more than a dozen people, law enforcement had him in less than a minute. It should be outrageous to all of us. What do you think about that, Kaylin? Well, I'm certainly outraged about the loss of life. And of course, I agree that these shootings uh, are terrible. What law would you put in place to have prevented the, the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting? I'd ban semi-automatic weapons. I would also probably have an age, instead of a 19-year-old being able to purchase these weapons, I would have a, a much much higher age. I would probably say 25, 28 years old, unless you get an exemption for hunting with your family, you know, or certain exemptions could be made. But um, those are a couple examples of, of laws that I think would be appropriate. How do you define a semi-automatic weapon? Uh, a weapon with which you can shoot more than a dozen people in under a minute, like he did here. So a very fast, fast-firing weapon made design. This was an AK-47, so it's it's a military-grade weapon designed to 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 kill people. It's not a hunting weapon. It's not. Um, so you, would you include handguns in that, based on your definition, fast-firing? No, I think I'd have to stop there because the Supreme Court has found there's a constitutional right to have a handgun. So California has an assault weapons ban. California has some of the strongest gun laws in the exactly. country. Exactly. So our federal, our federal government is asleep at the wheel because this person at his second home in Nevada purchased purchased the gun legally and then took it to California. So right. So he broke without, the law by bringing it over state lines. Obviously, he went to an event that was labeled as gun-free zone. He broke through a fence. He didn't go through the main entrance of this of this specific festival where they were actually doing bag checks and had security. Um, so this guy's a criminal. And it was um, too easy. It was too easy for him to do all so that. So you think we more make it laws on a national basis would have prevented this guy from Absolutely. breaking those laws? Absolutely. Prevent the dozens and dozens of mass shootings that have happened just in this year and absolutely a a more federal a reasonable federal gun control legislation would reduce these shootings so you think and why would a criminal follow that quote-unquote reasonable national gun law when they're not following existing law well it would be he would not be able to purchase it under the laws that that i would enact 
that Congress should enact. He would just simply not have been able to purchase the gun. Or there would have been a waiting period, a registration period. He would have been interviewed. Um, he would be too young. Uh, the weapon itself would be something that wouldn't be available yep. based on these laws. So he, he simply wouldn't have been able to purchase it. So your logic is criminals would follow those laws, that they wouldn't be able to get those laws, or get those guns, excuse me, illegally. No. Gun dealers follow the laws and wouldn't sell them to him. This this gun dealer made a perfectly legal transaction, yep. and then he he posted that he was very regretful and sorry that he had sold this weapon to this person, but he didn't do anything illegal because there are no laws that prevented that sale. I agree, not illegal at all for that gun dealer, um, but I just am honing in on the on your logic here that this particular shooter, who's a criminal by nature of what he did for a variety of reasons, um, that just because he couldn't legally buy a gun in any state, that would have prevented him from acquiring a gun. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a social experiment here we've conducted in America for many years. It's so easy to legally purchase guns. Um, most of the shootings that have happened, the shooters have legally purchased the gun. So yes, I'm assuming that I am, I am drawing the inference that without the ability to legally purchase these guns, some of the shootings wouldn't have taken place, wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I don't know that that assertion is correct, that most shooters have legally purchased their gun, especially when we see some of these school shootings, including the most recent one here in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Those shooters, my understanding, maybe you know differently, stole those guns from their parents who had legally acquired them, right? So how sure. do you... How do you prevent for that? Well, there's, in California, for example, there's um, storage rules. So that's something that could be uh, could be addressed with a national storage rule, perhaps. Which... But all of those laws in California didn't prevent this guy from breaking the law to commit his evil because, acts. Because he easily purchased the gun in the neighboring state. That's the problem with not having federal legislation. Yeah, you're definitely not persuading me on this. But we'll have a whole separate episode. I agree that there's always a lot, of to-, a lot to talk about uh, on gun control, but I think there is folly in the argument to think that enacting more laws, whatever those laws are going to be, are going to prevent criminals who by their name are breaking laws. Um, I think that that is not a logical argument to think that just smacking more laws onto the issue are going to prevent criminals from breaking laws. Oh, I disagree. I just think it's so easy to get these weapons. Um, Okay, that's all our time for today. Listeners, can you let us know your thoughts at redmombluemompodcast at gmail.com or by commenting on our podcast on Podbean, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us on Apple Podcasts, if you would, and share us on social media. Let us know if we have inspired you to have conversations with someone you disagree with. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 